Today's Bible reading uh, comes in two parts, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 26, and Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Romans 3, 19 to 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Thanks, Jeff. It's with some trepidation that I uh, open this passage before us this morning. If I had to choose a passage of scripture, especially in a series on the foundations of our faith and what is essential to have under our feet as Christians, then I'd have to have this passage up there, number one. Uh, I don't like to suggest that we can throw away parts of the Bible and keep others, I'm not saying that, but this passage is so essential if you and I are going to be able to live in the freedom that Christ desires us to live in, if we're to understand who we are as he looks at us, if we're to take hold of what it is to be a Christian indeed, then these few verses are essential. And all I'm really going to do this morning is take us through these verses which uh, explain how grace works and what grace is in in the real sense, in the biblical sense, in the New Testament sense. Uh, rather than maybe in the popular sense that we often think about it. Grace is such a uh, uh, misused word. Many people use it today in their own prayers or worship, even some songs, to speak of something which we feel, uh, an emotion, or we think of it substantially as sort of some stuff which God gives us and it helps us get through the day. For Paul, this term is central to his thinking. And when the church decided to get back on the tracks of the Bible and the Gospel in the days of the Reformation, 500-odd years ago, this word becomes central again. Understanding it becomes central. So this morning I want to look at three big words that Daniel just read to us And you might have noticed that they were highlighted in the second half of the reading. Now, frequently we we look at those big words and we think, oh, it's theology, it's academic, I can throw them away. But I would like to suggest to you that we should wrestle with those words which are uncommon to us in Scripture. And if we just pause a little and stay with them and understand them, then they will add a depth to our faith that is beyond what we normally experience. We should be aiming to be more biblically literate, not less. That was last week's sermon. I just couldn't help but go back there. (laughs) But uh, this week, we're going to look at what the Scriptures say. Now, for Paul, grace was essential. When the, uh, the... people of God decided to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, there was a hundred references in those massive corpus, the Old Testament, hundred references to the word grace. They used that 
to translate words like favour of God or mercy of God. That's what it means. It's a disposition within a person. If it's the grace of God, it's a disposition, it's a trait within God that leads to action. It's not some magical stuff out there. It's not something that's given to me or infused in me. It, it's, it's an attitude about a person who is merciful, who gives favours that are undeserved. The very nature of grace is that you shouldn't have it. That's the whole tenor. Now, when Paul starts to explain the gospel, in only his few letters, he uses this word 132 times. And I know that to be true because I've got Kay to stay up last night and count them. But, but, but <laughs> it's, it's astonishing. And uh, that's, the, that's the emphasis of Paul in his epistles and the other writers is that this is central. It's foundational to the Christian life. Well, that's enough of the academic stuff. And uh, we can even see in chapter 5 and verse 2, the last verse was read to us. It says, Through him, Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So grace is a position for us too. We can stand in it. We can stand before God on the basis of grace. Now, in this world today that we live in, there's uh, basically three different models of salvation floating around, faulty models of salvation. I'm reading off the little um, outline there, if you had that as it came in. I think there might be a few out the back if you need to nick out and get one. That's fine. Do make sure you come back. <laughs> but uh, there are three models of um, salvation that float around the world. They also float around the Christian world. And one idea of salvation is that it's just the fact that God forgives. It's sort of a mateship model. And uh, a lot of Aussies would have that attitude. I remember when we, a couple of cricket seasons ago, we experienced, all of us will witness the tragic death of the New South Wales cricketer Phil Hughes. Uh, you might remember that, struck by a ball, dead moments later. But I can remember the things that were said about that after his death. And uh, players went out to play the game again. The game must go on. And as they were playing the game, the commentators would say things like, um, well, I'm sure Phil is looking down upon us today. Remember that? And uh, I think I know where Phil is because he was a great guy. And there's this sort of idea that when Phil comes to the pearly gates or the day of judgment, God will sort of go, hey, there's Phil Hughes. He was a cricketer. He's a great guy. Hey, buddy old pal, <laughs> come in. It's the mateship model. And it basically says that, sure, God's got his standards, but he knows that boys will be boys and he will lower his holiness down to our value system and he'll work off our distorted value system when it comes to judgment. That's a very floppy view of God and God doesn't do that. He is intensely, essentially holy. He cannot deny himself. The judge of the world will do the right thing. No one gets off scot-free. We read that at the start of the passage today. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Then we've got the Santa Claus model. Now that's a little better. It's not amoral, it's moralism. It's that idea that, you know, he knows whether you've been naughty or nice. And when the judgment comes, or even if today was the day of judgment, then God has sort of got this scales, this set of scales. And he'll dish out what you deserve on the basis of whether you've been more good or more bad. Done naughty things or nice things. It's popular religion. It's all around the world. It's in most religions, the Santa Claus model of salvation. And uh, it sort of has a certain appeal. It upholds the justice of God. He's got to judge people. But the trouble is, 
we're not sure of the basis of his calculations. I mean, you know, if, if you give to the Good Friday appeal, does that wipe out adultery? I mean, what is the, the eraser that wipes out sin? And just how does this work? It actually is very unclear. And it basically is saying that uh, you can buy your way out with God. You don't have to be good, but if you can work out what the old boy likes, give him those treats, he will forgive you. Again, it's a corruption of the image of God. It sounds more like the people who want to use it than the God of Scripture. And then you've got the, I call it the Republican model, or the Liberal Party model, the God has spelt GOP model. Here, he saves us in as much as he knows we can't save ourselves. He gives us Jesus, or he lifts us up and forgives us, but from then on, he wants a return on his investment. And our job in life is to be responsible. There's no free handouts in this life. He was just helping you up to get you back on the road. So you might start saved, but you've got to keep yourself saved. Now that's actually a much more complex model. That's actually Roman Catholicism. And uh, it's a very, if you want an impressive religion that has really thought through the calculation side of how to get right with God, it's Roman Catholicism. Trouble is, it's just a mockery of God. And it breaks his word. Now, I'm sad. I know some deep friends who are Roman Catholics and they really don't believe that. They believe the gospel. Uh, but what concerns me is that same way of thinking, the Republican model, is alive and well in the evangelical church today. There are people who call themselves evangelicals. There are bishops. There are famous theologians, even in colleges in this city, people that I have taught that I regret are teaching this model as if it is the New Testament model. And I cannot, for the moment, know where they get off because it's directly contradicted, especially by this passage that we're going to look at. If you notice, all these models share three things in common. Here's a a, you know, a complex word. They're all synergistic. So throw that one out at coffee next week sometime. <laughs> I'm feeling a little synergistic today. <laughs> um, but synergism is it's where the word synergy. It means with, working, cooperating, collaboration. These are all collaborative models. They're synergistic. God does something and I do something, and that seems fair. We work together. Each one of them, however, is biased. They want to uphold the love of God and the justice of God, but they can't quite get that tension together. And so the first one, the mateship model, gives in to the love of God. He's got to throw away his tension of justice and holiness. The others uphold justice. And, uh, but they're giving away the tension of the love of God. The last one tries to be a little bit loving and a little bit just. just. God gives us some grace, but then he'll expect that return. They're biased one way or the other. And because of that, they're also insecure. We never will really know where we stand. We cannot be confident if we're saved today that we're going to be saved tomorrow, let alone at the end of the race. They appeal to logic. They sound good to men. The gospel doesn't. That's the remarkable thing. If you have a theory of salvation, of how to get to heaven, of how to get to right with God, and it all stacks up, and it's moralistic, you know it's the invention of human beings. There is a theory floating around called the New Perspective on Paul. It started really back with a liberal theologian in the 60s, Ernst Kasserman. 
It's continued through C.H. Dunn, N.T. Wright, Michael Bird and others. It is exactly this, synergistic. It's not what Paul taught. Let's look at what Paul actually said and so we go slow through the second half of this passage. Paul begins, in fact it might even be worth having the text up on the, uh, um, you know, the, from 321, that second slide. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That but now tells us that we're in the middle of some great argument. As you know, Paul's letter to the Romans was his manifesto. He wrote it on holidays. He had time to think, to sit down and work out just exactly how to make his point stone clear. And he did it very, very deliberately. When I was a new Christian, the person who gave me my first bit of advice said, if you want to read anything to understand what God is doing in your life, slowly read the book of Romans. In fact, he suggested I summarise a paragraph of Romans every day. It took me nine months. I am so glad I did. I just wrote it out in my own words. But when I came to this passage, I was stumped because I didn't have words like this in my vocabulary. I only did someone to help me through it. And this passage is so clear. Paul has just spent the first three chapters of Romans pointing out the top point that he made in the earlier part that no human being will be justified. We are hopeless. If you measure us up by the law of God, we're in a hopeless situation. There is no one righteous, not even one, he says in 3.10. There aren't gurus in God's sight. Even the Dalai Lama doesn't measure up to the standards that God has for the average human being. There is none righteous. But now, that's not the end of the story. Here is a hinge in history. Here we come to how the universe is constructed. If we want to understand where we fit in the grand scheme of things, these few verses tell us. If you want to have a life that is just foggy and vague and you just do what the next man does, don't listen. Turn off now. If you want to understand where you stand in the cosmos, listen carefully. If that's of any interest to you. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, going back to chapter 1 where he says the righteousness of God was manifested and that God gave men over to their sins. But now there is another way that the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the scriptures, bear witness to it. So on the one hand, God's righteousness, what do we mean by righteousness? That's not a word you've probably used this week. But righteousness is two things. It can be two things. Righteousness really is an ethical quality, a virtue. Holiness would be another parallel term. But righteousness also, as we'll see later, is also the verdict that you receive in a court of law if you're innocent. It's both and. But I think here, Paul expects us to have enough flexibility to be able to read in context. That he's saying, God has done the right thing in this thing. The righteousness of God has been manifested in that he's been able to take the law out of the equation when he judges us. And yet, this system isn't non-biblical. It's been written in the scriptures right through the prophets that this would be the way God put people right with himself. Right the way through scriptures. This isn't novel. God hasn't suddenly broken his stride. He hasn't broken the model. But he's managed in a way to put people like you and me in the right without measuring us by his own standards. How on earth can he do that and be a just judge? How can a judge hand down a verdict on a, on a defendant 
without his own standards. God has, Paul is saying. That's the amazing thing. How did he do it? Verse 22. Here is the model. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. One model, not one model for Jews, another model for Gentiles. For all who trust in Jesus, this is the model. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That you can have the verdict of being declared innocent in a court of law through faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. That's his model. That's his statement. And now he amplifies it in verses 23 and 24. He puts it up in lights now. Did you hear what I said, he's saying. And he's not embarrassed about it. He's not going to apologize for this gospel. He actually makes it even more stark. He drives a wedge into this tree of righteousness so that it will not close over into moralism ever again. And he takes down the religions of the world when he says these next things. The righteousness of God for all believe, for there's no distinction. Notice, all have sinned. He's not using the Phil Hughes matey model. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are a complete disappointment. We have not lived up to our agenda that God had for us. We are meant to be image bearers of the great, wonderful God. But we have failed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. Did you get that? In other words, God acquits, because this is what the word justified means. We have to understand this word. Justification means what a judge says when you come to court and he declares you innocent. He hears the case put forward, he runs through the legal process, things are said, and if you're innocent, you are justified. It's the verdict, it's the declaration that a judge makes. We have to be very clear about this. Justification is not... Justification is not a description of your morality. Justification is not a description of your ethics. Justification in no sense describes how you perform. Justification is a declaration, not a description. It's critical that you understand this. So God declares... Who does he declare that are justified by his grace as a gift? Who does he declare innocent? What did it say in the previous phrase? Those who've fallen short, all of us. He justifies the unworthy. Now you see Paul's point? He wants to make this point scandalous. He wants to rub salt into the wound of moralism. And the average religious person really struggles to understand this. In fact, I think half the people teaching the Bible today really struggle to understand this. It is absolutely critical that we do, though, that God justifies, declares innocent those who don't deserve us. And that's why I said we're justified by his grace as a gift. We fall short of the glory test, but we're all shown mercy. Notice the basis upon which he justifies us. It's got nothing to do with our performance. It's what those three words say. What does it say? By his grace. We're declared innocent purely and simply and totally by something that comes from within God and comes out in his actions. By his grace. His mercy, his favour. If you are right with God, if you've made your peace with God, if you are really saved and you're sitting here this morning and you're a child of God, then that is totally because of something from God. Out of him, God's action, by grace alone. Well, the question is, that sounds like (laughs) favouritism. How can it be that God can 
freely justify, declare innocent those who aren't innocent. I'm not. You're not. (laughs) How can he do it? Here's how. It goes on in the rest of the verse to say it's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, verse 24, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. So justification, first big word, it's a synonym for what? Acquittal. Here, what the judge does with the innocent. First big word. Second big word is the word, it's through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We've got to understand redemption too. Now these weren't big words in Paul's day. They were day-to-day terms. I mean, oftentimes we might use the, the word redeem today when someone can't remember your Christmas present and they give you a Bunnings voucher, you can go and redeem it. You convert it into something else. But redemption in Paul's day was a richer term. It was used for that time when, say, you were a faithful slave and uh, you wanted to have your freedom. Now, slaves didn't earn a wage. That's why they're slaves. (laughs) And if you wanted it, you couldn't earn your freedom. But occasionally, a gracious owner would take an old slave down to the local temple and he would sell the slave to the local god. And they'd put a hole through the ear of that person as a mark to say they are a freed slave. That was redemption. The word really means to free by payment. Another place redemption was used was in the military services when you had two combating forces and, and uh, soldiers would be taken prisoner from each side. You could work out if you had a valuable soldier that you wanted to redeem and get back, you would have a prisoner exchange. There was always a transaction before the freedom. And so what Paul is saying here is that we have had a redemption. We, as it were, were prisoners of sin. We weren't free, we were facing judgment. The justice of God would hunt us out like a heat-sinking missile. And instead of being living under that threat, God has made a prisoner swap, Jesus for you. His blood in your place. So this is saying it is legally right for God to justify the sinner because a payment has been made. The title deeds have been handed over. It's moral, it's legal. That's how come it's right this grace alone business. And then he goes on and he says something else, even more phenomenal. And we're justified. What's justified mean? Acquitted. Declared innocent. By his grace. What's grace mean? Ten minutes ago. (laughs) Favour. Mercy. Undeserved. As a gift, we know what a gift is, through the redemption, which means the freedom through the paying of a price that comes about in Christ Jesus. That's what saves us. How much of this have I earned yet? None of it. That's why it's grace. And then he says... In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is the heart of the cosmos right here. This word is absolutely critical. This is the heart of the gospel, the word propitiation. I haven't used it often, uh, not even with K. It's not a word which you use frequently. But propitiation is an important word. This is one of the foundational words that has been attacked viciously by theologians since C.H. Dodd in 1931, a liberal theologian. It really means to appease wrath. Now Dodd, as a liberal back in 1931, he liked the idea of God being love. But for him, he couldn't get his head around 
the idea of a God being loving and being wrathful. How can you fit those two things together, he said. So he wrote that we should translate this word, instead of what Paul wanted to use, propitiation. He chose a word, expiation. And so influential was Dodd that the Revised Standard Version wrote that into the text, as did a couple of other versions. I think the New English Bible did as well. Trouble is, expiation doesn't mean propitiation. Expiation is another word I don't use often. <laughs> but it really means to wipe clean, to scour. It's like what you did with a blackboard or a whiteboard when you were a kid. You expiated the marks off it. And so Dodd said, that's what God does. Out of his love, he just wipes our record clean. Rubbish he does. What sort of judge would let a criminal come into his court and say, hey, I'm in a good mood, we're just going to wipe the record clean today. God would not be God if he could not judge the world and he did not judge the world when it deserved it. But God does judge the world. The word actually means propitiation. I'm also disappointed with later translations. The NIV and the New Revised Standard Version, trembling at the lack of popularity of the idea that God could be both loving and just, they were scared of the idea of wrath, and so they wrote this little phrase, sacrifice of atonement. Jesus was put forward as a sacrifice of atonement. That's just not what Paul said. What right have men got to change the words of the apostles, I ask you? Because they can't understand it, we change the word. The word means to appease the righteous wrath of God. Probably the problem people had was that when we think of wrath, we think of someone like the God of Islam, who is capricious, who is unpredictable. He flies off the handle. The pagan gods, you didn't know what they believed, you didn't know where they stand, and so you go through life, as does the average Hindu, propitiating your deity. You bribe the deity with nice food, with gifts and this sort of thing. But that's not the God of Scripture. His wrath, in fact, it's interesting, do you know that in the Bible there are two words for wrath? One is thumos, like our word thermos. That means capricious, explosive wrath, fly off the handle. That word is only once used in a poem about God. All the other times God's wrath is used in the Bible, it uses another word, orge, which means a settled disposition, and an indignation that's deep. And that's why it's more dangerous. God's wrath cannot be rubbed off the blackboard. God's wrath will seek its target. God does not set his wrath aside, though he be loving. He does not compromise his holiness. His wrath is to be taken seriously. How many Christian songs can you think of written in the last century that talked about the holy wrath of God? I'll give you 10 minutes. Our gospel has been lopsided, folks, because we have undersold something which is very real, though it's not essential to his character. He wishes he wasn't wrathful. Love is essential to his character. He's always loving. And you see, this tension that we have, it's a tension that's borne by God, inside God, right through eternity. He would love to love, but he must be holy. He is wrathful, but it's not capricious and explosive. It's a settled disposition. If we'd only read what the text said, we wouldn't have gone and changed the translation. God's wrath is to be taken seriously. Now, what Paul is saying here is that God can acquit the unworthy, he can justify you and me, the sinner, because on the one hand, God and justice has received payment to free us and let us go from his court. But also, 
I don't really get a lot of comfort directly from the fact that a payment has been made for my life. Sure, that might set me up morally and legally with God, but can I ever raise my face in his presence? The reason why I can raise my face in his presence is because something has happened inside God psychologically, emotionally. His wrath has been extinguished. I'll give you a trivial example of this, but it is so critical. I'm sorry to labour the point, but for your sake and God's sake, we must. Many years ago, I was chatting to Corinne the other day. We are wandering down memory lane. We were at the same church when her dad was at Oakley Baptist as the pastor. And uh, there was an interesting phenomenon at Oakley Baptist. They, we had these couple of um, senior ladies, very generous souls. We called them the aunties. And uh, there was Auntie Dot, and I can't remember the other one. And you might know them. <laughs> You're probably related to them. Uh, but uh, I don't defame them, they're quite quite harmless, but they had this ministry where if there were two people who were single, then (laughs) they'd sort of (laughs) manipulate it so that uh, you could meet Miss Wright over lunch. And so what would happen every Sunday, I was a single gent rolling up to Oakley Baptist, a young school teacher, and uh, you'd finish the service, you'd fall out in the back for a cup of tea and one of the aunties would come up to you and say, Jeff, are you doing anything for lunch today? And, say, and stupidly you'd say, well, no, I don't think so. Say, come home with us. You'd go home and the aunties would introduce you and sit you down in front of some person you had no idea. There was, I can still remember, lunch after lunch, so it would be the bifocal librarian or the southern hairy leg biochemist and you know it just wasn't safe (laughs) and Auntie Dot would sort of basically say well look I'll just go and check the lunch and I'll let you two people get to know each other (laughs) and off she'd go and uh, after a while this is where a bit thin and I'd met so many eligible women in the, and I, I knew that there was one family that didn't have daughters. It was the Dixon family, another Dixon family. And they had sons. And so come the end of the sermon, I used to just gravitate for the Dixon family. They say, Jeff, the aunties, you to say yes. <laughs> come home with us. And the Dixons were great because they'd watch the footy in the afternoon. I, I confess that uh, we used to breach the Sabbath and... Um, but uh, it was interesting in the Dixon family. They were a robust bunch. The dad was like the sons. The son was like the three sons were like the dad. They were sport mad. Oh, it was bliss. And uh, you'd sit there, you'd, you know, the lunch would be cleared away, and they'd get into discussions, usually about football or cricket, and, and there'd be some discussion like, you know, what was the greatest mark in the last 50 years? And, and uh, you know, one son would say, oh, it was, uh, you know, Michael Roach over the top of the pack. You remember that, Mark? Uh, and the dad say, oh, no, it's got to be Jezelenko over the top of Jerker Jenkins in the 70 grand final. Amazing. Got you know, right up. In. And they'd start to argue the case about trivia like this and almost come to blows and start calling each other's names. And uh, you'd be sitting there as the guest thinking, I just, I was going to say, Jeff, no, no one. Uh, and you'd bow out, and then all of a sudden, up they'd get, and they'd vamoosh out of the room. And the father would slam the door, and then he'd have another door slam, and he'd be up somewhere in the bedroom, don't know what he's doing up there. The oldest son used to just steam out of the kitchen, literally slam the wire door, and then down the back, and he's at the wood pile. And he'd rip off his jumper, and he'd put up... Stump after stump, boom, boom. He'd be hoeing in. There was enough wood chopped for a whole battalion in half an hour. There he was. Now, I'm still sitting there thinking, I wonder if I could go and turn on the telly. Uh, (laughs) And they'd come back in, and the dad would come out of the the bedroom, and the son would come in and say, want a cup of dad? Oh, sure, that'd be good. And he'd go, what's going on here? A minute, they're, they're going to tear each other apart. Now, do you want to? I'll, I'll have coffee. 
But you really sensed the temperature had dropped. The room was sane. What had happened? The son, and probably the dad, I don't know what the dad was doing, but the son had chosen a creative alternative to taking out his wrath, righteous though it may not have been, on the old man. He had propitiated his anger on an alternative object, a block of wood. And what Paul is saying is that what happened when Jesus was at the cross, you can read about it seven centuries earlier in Isaiah 53, that though it looked like Jesus was being killed by the powers of this world and the powers of this day, Isaiah tells us that the transgressions of us were falling on him and by his stripes we were healed. God was taking out his vengeance on an alternative object. That's the heart of the gospel. He had to deal with sin, but he chose an alternative object rather than touch the people he loves, you and me. That's grace. That's costly. That's scary. That's the tension resolved. Love and justice have embraced each other at Calvary. God has not compromised. He's not gone soft on sin. The law has had its day. We've been justified because Jesus has been condemned as the sinner. And he's taken our stripes. When did this happen? Whose idea was that? Who came up with this scheme? And when did they come up with it? They came up with it before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God was slain. He had his, his agenda, his life role set before him. And see what Paul has said is that God, the Trinitarian God, needed a scapegoat. He had this tension within himself that was moral and right and holy to pour grace into the world, a world that needed to be judged. It was a problem in him, not some law court, and so it had to be solved within him. And so God the Father and God the Son collaborated and they came up with this scheme knowing that the world they would create would impudently turn on the Creator and demand the title deeds to their own lives. And this God said to the Son, you're going to have to go and cop the rap for that bunch. And the son said, we both love them. I will go. Before you were a glint in your father's eye, before this cosmos was there, he'd already resolved it. He knew what we'd be like, but he's still happy to create a world and then happy to come and redeem a world. That is a great, amazing grace, is it not? Well... We have to understand these things that God's grace is legally right but it's internally stable because once wrath is expressed, it is extinguished. It's gone. And Paul finishes his passage by saying, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. But a just God can't keep on turning a blind eye. He can't keep on passing over sins forever. He had done that. Eventually, sin had to have its day in court. And that's why he did this, this way. But moreover, more importantly to us, 26, it was to show his righteousness, moral righteousness here, his holiness at the present time, so that we might he might be both just 
He's doing the right thing. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sinners like myself. So he can be doing the right thing. This is not some fiction. This is not God pretending that we're righteous. God has to set us free. He has to declare us innocent because he has paid the price and he has expressed the wrath. The coast is clear. Here's a test as we go from today. Are these Christian statements? I'm going to make two statements. Which of them is Christian? One is, Pastor... I think I'm doing well with God. I don't have a particular sense of having failed him recently. I'm travelling pretty well, tracking well. I've been going to church and I've really felt God to be close. Therefore, I think if he came now, I would be saved. What's wrong with that? It's saying that the basis of my salvation is in what I do. It's not grace then, is it? It's not undeserved favour. Jesus may well have not died because you sing well or you give to the Good Friday appeal or you feel good about yourself. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, as it says at the bottom of the page, monogistic. Only one person is working. It's not synergistic. It's not a collaborative venture. Only God saves. Only God saves you and me alone. We are passive. And it's not subjective, it's objective. What about this one? I have many people over the years say this one to me. Pastor, I would love to come back to church. I was saved, but then I really stuffed it. And I'm not going to go into the details, but I am thoroughly embarrassed. I don't think I could ever raise my head. I think if I was judged this day, God would put me in the scrap heap. Was saved, no way back. That's another thing that people say. What's wrong with that statement? It's not a Christian statement, though Christians make that statement. What's wrong with it is that they forget that justification, and here's the point for you this morning, justification is something which you have presently. Notice what it says in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. What time is that? Now, it's not the righteousness of God at the end of time. The crazy thing is, you know what your justification means? If you have been justified by faith, it means that at the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you got the verdict which is going to be read out in eternity. You've already got it. You already received God's verdict. So no matter what happens between now and eternity, you already know what the eternal verdict is. That is absolutely critical to hold on to. A lot of people are living defeated lives because they don't realise that justification is the verdict of God on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of your performance. That's the nature of grace. Just notice the timing of the verdict. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5, with this we finish. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified. He does not say, since we hope to be justified. He does not say, since we might be justified. He says, since we have been justified. It is finished, finito. It is in which tense? The past tense. That means that the judgment of God is a dead issue. It's in the past. 
You have God's verdict when you trust in Christ. Did you know that before you came today? Through him we have obtained this access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And what do we look forward to? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're going ahead to glory. Sure. People will often say, but doesn't that risk people abusing grace? Absolutely. But I find, folks, the more you appreciate how undeserved the work of Christ is, the more gratitude flows. And you just can't bring yourself to treat it lightly. If you don't have an understanding of the holiness of God, you won't have an understanding of the grace of God. The two go together. The more you understand the peril you are in, the more you understand how God hates sin, the more you look at Jesus Christ as the propitiation, God's scapegoat for your sin, the more your life will be full of gratitude. It'll be a life of worship, automatically. Now that's not all there is to salvation. There's so much more to be said. There is the subjective side, but the subjective is not foundational. What stands at the foundation is that you are justified by faith, by grace, by his work. It's a monogistic system. You are passive. He is active. All you do is say, thanks. Let's do that now. Let's stand this morning as we give thanks. Lord God, we stand in the presence of of the Holy One of God. We stand at a point in time in your salvation history. And we thank you so much that we stand at this point in time where all the righteousness, all the deeds that need to be done have been done by yourself. We stand this side of the propitiating work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. But we just want to give you thanks this morning, Lord that in some point in eternity, before there was even time, love won out over justice. And he resolved to be gracious to a world that was undeserving. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us this message that we might be justified, acquitted, declared innocent in your court we thank you that this day we stand having the verdict read over our heads. We put our name into this, that you say to us, you are now innocent. Regardless of what we have done, regardless of what we will do, we thank that we, we cannot lose that verdict which has been handed down by the judge. We thank you, our Lord and God, for this. For Jesus, we give you great thanks and praise. Amen.